Hello, and welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experience in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, a musical, or a theater company that you may not have known about. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater visits that I attended in November of 2018. I'll cover the thrillingly beautiful and brilliant musical called Renaissance, based on the life and poetry of Edna St. Vincent Millay. The Girl from the North Country is a new musical which uses the songs of Bob Dylan and is at the Public Theater. And this month I hit six Broadway offerings, four plays and two musicals. And I'll tell you right up front, The Ferryman is a do-not-miss play. It is just extended till July, so there's plenty of time to catch that one. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. That's theater with E-R, not R-E. www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's get started. We'll start with a play exploring the immigrant experience at the Castillo Theater. It's called Dishwasher Dreams. 2018 feels like a good time to experience Aladdin Ula's Dishwasher Dreams. In a world which is vilifying immigrants on a daily basis, it's refreshing to actually listen to the story from the other side. Mr. Ula tells his family's tale in the form of a comic monologue since he has had a career in stand-up. At 18 years old, his father arrived from Bangladesh, settled in Spanish Harlem, and got a job as a dishwasher. Near the end of this very personal and introspective play, he notes that America, quote, was the place you can come to and feel welcome. I wonder if anyone feels that way today, unquote. Dishwasher Dreams is nothing if not timely. The stories recounted here are quite personal, often funny, and occasionally very moving. The tears well up in Mr. Ola's eyes a number of times, which makes his heartfelt delivery more poignant than merely listening to the words. His mother is a particular character to enjoy. She doesn't quite understand his infatuation with the Yankees, noting, Why would I want to see men in pajamas playing with sticks? As portrayed here, she is a classic immigrant mom, like many you have seen or heard about before, full of quips and full of love. Like many Americans, she struggles with race when one of her sons dates a black woman. She learns English from Sesame Street. Every Sunday, the family travels downtown to watch Bollywood films to remember who they are, despite the fact that the boys want to see Jaws or Star Wars. Familiar terrain indeed, but nicely executed with a reflective lens that the passage of time allows. Dishwasher Dreams does need some fine-tuning and nuanced direction, but the backbone is strong. Since the structure is largely a comic monologue, Mr. Ula speeds through many sections like we are in a nightclub. That may work for the punchlines, but not when he is performing the many people we are fortunate to meet. The pace makes certain sections 
confusing to follow. A slower delivery with more delineation of voice or physical mannerisms would greatly enhance the storytelling. Mr. Ula's father was a dishwasher who knew Sidney Portier just as Sid, another immigrant dishwasher before he became an enormously famous Oscar-winning Hollywood star. His father's dreams were not nearly as big, or perhaps they were, to live a life free, to raise a family and be happy, to dream. Why is that so hard for so many people to empathize with? Next, I'd like to take you downtown and the Transport Group's production of a new musical, Renaissance. In 2012, Patti Lapone opened the Broadway nightclub 54 Below with a one-week engagement. She performed her magnificent song, Meadowlark, which is justifiably famous in theatrical circles. I had never heard this masterpiece of exquisite lyrical storytelling from 1976's musical The Baker's Wife by Stephen Schwartz, which toured the country but closed out of town before reaching Broadway. At the intermission of Renaissance, I was both ecstatic and overwhelmed that the first act contained at least two meadowlarks in its score, one being the beanstalk. By the end of this gloriously creative world premiere musical, I was speechless in the best possible way. Edna St. Vincent Millay was the first woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1923. In this loosely dreamlike show, we follow her from her impoverished, fatherless upbringing prior to her skyrocketing to literary fame with the publication of Renaissance. It's a poem she entered into a 1917 contest in the publication The Lyric Year. The prize was to be a life-changing $1,000. In order to tell this emotionally bountiful and progressively feminist story, first-time composer Carmel Dean has beautifully scored the music to Vincent's poems. Vincent is Edison Vincent Millay's preferred name. Renaissance is a biographical piece, but key figures in her life are given the opportunity to express their feelings using Vincent's words. The effect is mesmerizing. The prose is rich with imagery, and the music is simply gorgeous, enhancing the dramatic storytelling and providing layers upon layers of emotional depth that never get in the way of the words themselves. Clearly one of the best musicals of the year, Renaissance is a tour de force on every level. Jack Cummings III and book writer Dick Scanlon directed this superlative musical. I loved everything, everything, everything I saw on stage from the entire creative team. Jen Shriver's spectacularly fine and nuanced lighting was particularly memorable. I saw history illuminated from Vincent's humble beginnings to her expansively larger-than-life persona. The creative team let us fill in the visual blanks as we listened and marveled at the never-ending cascade of gorgeous prose flowing from the stage at the Abrams Art Center. Every person in the six-member cast was spot-on in their often multiple characterizations. As Vincent, Hannah Corno's performance of this feisty, flawed, and complex woman is astonishingly fine. Her story arc and personal growth are always believable and clearly delineated, 
equally sumptuous and scrappy. Miss Corneau will likely be someone I see in the future and gladly boast that I saw her in Renaissance. She's that captivating on stage. Miraculously fine casting, however, nicely balances the show away from being simply a star vehicle. Each cast member shines brightly, and that is not simply the result of atmospheric lighting. Vincent's words and the relationships in her orbit are explored with a breathtaking level of emotional heft and depth. Michaela Bennett, Jason Gattay, Danny Harris-Kornfeld, Katie Thompson, and Douglas Weber Jr. manage to traverse ensemble work and then step into and out of their own riveting spotlight. Renaissance is a triumph musically and theatrically. There were a few aggressively unimpressed through negative body language types in the audience, including the woman who sat next to me and clapped lightly as if it pained her to do so. I felt sorry for them. What I saw on stage can be summed up with a few lines from Renaissance. Of wind blew up to me and thrust, into my face a miracle, of orchard breath and with the smell, I know not how such things can be. I breathed my soul back into me. My advice, run to see this one. Or better yet, dash away, dash away, dash away all. Unfortunately, Renaissance is now closed, but they just did a charitable GoFundMe, and they are going to be recording a cast album, which is due to be released in March of 2019. The songs are exceptional, and I encourage you to go out and really try and test this show out. It's beautiful music, beautiful words, beautiful storytelling, and I hope I see this show produced somewhere again very soon. Next up, the Atlantic Theatre Company's production of the play Fireflies. The metaphor-stuffed play Fireflies takes place somewhere down south where the sky is on fire. In the fall of 1963, an African-American married couple is wrestling with racial prejudice and many demons, both externally and internally. Chris Davis plays Charles, a famed preacher who delivers impassioned speeches written by his wife, Olivia. She hears bombs going off in her head. The audience sees bombs going off in the sky, which, at first, underscore the horrible environment in the Deep South where black people are constantly being killed. Funerals are frequent, eulogies need to be written, life is scary and uncertain. The bombs explode throughout the play, and there are many more reasons for them to go off. Fireflies is one of those extremely topical plays in which we must face our complicated and disturbing past with a reflective lens on our present. Unfortunately, the play is not a very good one. The words flow unnaturally from the two characters as the metaphors are heavy-handed and stop the flow of the play for a bit of speechifying. The fireflies of the title are the souls of the people in the world. The sky is on fire. Olivia's mind is overwhelmed with thoughts and fears and regrets. Danya R. Love's play nicely touches on the time period and the perils facing this couple, but the play is grossly overstuffed with plot twists. DeWanda Wise played Olivia, and her performance was very good. I felt her emotions as she traversed her fears and all of the pain she was feeling and hiding. Her tears were heartbreakingly real, 
and her eyes spoke volumes about her state of mind. Miss Wise managed to captivate my attention throughout, which helped me survive the soap opera dramatics of the plot. Even when the story went skidding off the rails with revelation upon revelation, I felt Olivia's pain, sorrow, and regret. Her history, and the prejudices she faced and feared, still need to be told and need to be heard, but in a much better play. Now for the first of six Broadway offerings this month, we'll start with the Roundabout Theatre Company's presentation of Bernhardt Hamlet. In Sarah Bernhardt's own words, the roles of men are, in general, more intellectual than the roles of women. Only the role of Phaedra gives me the charm of digging into a heart that is truly anguished. Always in the theater, the parts played by the men are the best parts. And yet theater is the sole art where women can sometimes be superior to men. The new play, Bernhard Hamlet, takes us backstage as Miss Bernhard prepares to take on Hamlet in the year 1899. The great actress Janet McTeer grabs hold of her portrayal of this legendarily great actress and a very compelling story soars. Hamlet was one of Miss Bernhardt's famous stage triumphs. In this play, she wrestles with how to grasp the character and the meanings of Shakespeare's lines. Her current lover and playwright Edmund Rostan played by Jason Bernhardt Harner in an excellent performance. Well, he's convinced to write a prose version to replace the Bard's poetry. This famed actress rehearses and rehearses scenes from Hamlet, and the audience is treated to an insight into the creative process. When Miss McTeer and Dylan Baker perform a classic scene between Hamlet and his father's ghost, the magical spark of theater is realized for them and for us. This play, and most importantly, these performances illuminate the often rocky terrain required to reach creative peaks. That theme, and the presence of Miss McTeer, is satisfying enough. The great news about Bernhard Hamlet is the play offers so much more than that to ponder. It's loosely a biography of this famous actress, from her lovers to her illegitimate son. The famed Art Nouveau graphic artist, Alphonse Mucha created her poster for Hamlet, which I just saw at his namesake museum in Prague last month. He agonizes how to capture the essence of what Bernhardt is doing. Not everyone is convinced her taking on Hamlet is a good idea, nor is the scandal of a rewrite. At a cafe, Rostan says to his companion, You've made up your mind before you've even seen it. The reply, After all, I am a theater critic. The creative risks taken by Miss Bernhardt in shattering centuries of tradition to challenge herself to grab hold of one of the most important roles in the theatrical canon is pure drama itself. Adding in her theatrical orbit, the supporters and dissenters, helps to paint a rich tapestry of the type of drive and desire required to unearth cultural milestones. Miss McTeer guides us through Bernhardt's witty, egocentric, flamboyant, nervy, confident, mystified, uncertain, and nervous persona. While she does make a convincing feminist statement, the personal statement felt even bigger from my vantage point. Moritz von Stupnagel, 
directed Bernhard Hamlet, and the many laughs are perfectly executed. The dressing room scene in Act Two is one of my favorites of the year. He has assembled an extraordinary team, from the acting ensemble to the designers of the set, costumes, and lighting. As is fitting, though, Sarah Bernhardt still manages to stand above all that, alone and iconic. And Teresa Rebeck has created a marvelous vehicle to celebrate women, creativity, theater, and risk-taking worthy of its grand subject. To the Broadway theater we go, and the new musical, King Kong. There are some awe-inspiring visuals in the new musical, King Kong, based on the 1933 classic film starring Faye Ray. Considered a landmark horror movie notable for its special effects, how could this iconic movie, which contains scenes of a mammoth-sized ape wreaking havoc on New York City, possibly be staged and musicalized? The very good news for the show is that the effects and visuals are truly impressive. Extraordinary might even be a better word for the technical achievements on display. The very, very bad news for King Kong is that the musical is disappointingly bad. The promising opening shows a black-and-white 1931 New York City. Skyscrapers are being built higher and higher. The steel beams rise on both sides of the stage. The music is moody and effective. The large ensemble sets the time and place. I become immediately invested to see where the show would travel next. When the leads enter and the two contemporary book and generic songs are introduced, the story turns into a gloriously expensive and dumbed-down theme park show. There are enjoyments along the way, especially the ocean travel aboard the SS Wanderer, another visual treat. Through the use of projections, the audience is taken for a ride on this incredible journey. Drew McGonney directed and choreographed King Kong. Many moments are eye-filling. The fluid movement by this large ensemble was interesting and rather unique. That filled some space when the awesome Kong was not on stage in his star performance. The only character in this show with any set of dimensions on display is the Magnificent Beast. His sheer size truly overwhelms the proscenium. A large crew manipulates the puppet much more than just physically. The monster is expressive and emotive with its eyes, mouth, and voice. Kong is by far the most fully realized performance here, both exciting during the action scenes and tender-hearted during the intimate ones. Do I recommend a visit to this show? I'm glad that I saw it. The stagecraft was often spectacular. As a musical, though, King Kong does not deliver the goods. If only this had been staged as a musically scored play with a lot more believable tension emanating from the human actors, this could have been an adventure to remember. As it stands now, wait for discount tickets if you are a Broadway junkie who always has time for groundbreaking stagecraft wasted on a bad show. Let's move on to something which I really insist you must see if you can. And that's the play on Broadway called The Ferryman. Remember August Osage County? Tracy Letts Pulitzer Prize winning three-act masterpiece with a large cast 
centering on the Weston family in Oklahoma. For those who relish enormously satisfying plays stuffed with full-blooded characters, the successor to the throne has arrived. The Ferryman, written by the extremely talented playwright Jez Butterworth, should be on your must-see list. I saw two of his previous plays here in New York, Jerusalem and The River. Jerusalem was beyond awesome. After a brief, ominous prologue, this play opens with a man and a woman playing Connect Four. The game, they're drinking whiskey and debating which rock band they would want on a desert island. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, or Led Zeppelin. When she hears that her answer is not correct, she clarifies that the question was who she wanted to be with on the island, not whose music she wanted to hear. This play is filled with conversational detail. The action takes place in the home of the large Carney family, who are rural farmers in Northern Ireland. The time is 1981, as the Mays prison hunger strikes are occurring during the Troubles. The family is readying the household for harvest day. The goose has been fatted up but goes missing. Everyone seems to adore whiskey and relish storytelling. Monologues, from comedic to tragic, occasionally mystical and often jarringly intense, are riveting throughout. Themes pour out of this play nearly as often as the whiskey flows. It is possible that the only family member not to drop back a shot or a beer is the infant child. The Ferryman is a celebration of Irish family, home, and their famed culture of storytelling. The Ferryman is also a commentary on the Troubles and how they impacted the Irish people generally and this family specifically. Centuries of conflict between Northern Ireland and England. Centuries of conflict between Catholics and Protestants. How do everyday people live their lives? Must we hate the opposite side? Should we? Is there even a side that is completely in the right? For thousands of years, our world has been engulfed in wars that never seem to end. Somehow, religion seems to be a key factor, but we know that money and power are the bigger draws. Mr. Butterworth has written a play that takes an intimate look at a political conflict within a much larger family drama. The scope grows as the play ends, and you realize that stories such as these can probably be similarly concocted for many cultures and their conflicts. Being Ireland, however, the tale here is rich with words, imagery, gregariousness, and alcohol. Directed by Sam Mendes, the production is first-rate. The acting is uniformly superb, notably by the children. All of the creative elements work in support of the piece. The ferryman is always alive. The nearly two dozen characters breathe, sigh, laugh, and cry. A vividly real and very colorful family is celebrating a holiday with serious political drama swirling in the air. Aunt Pat, played by an excellent Deerbro Malloy, well, Aunt Pat stirs and stirs the pot. Sounds like a Thanksgiving dinner in America to me. I visited Northern Ireland about a decade ago. A driver took us down the street, which was ground zero for the Troubles. The protests were painted curbs rather than bombs at that point. In a pub near Galway, we met a group of young men who were on their way to an overnight bachelor party on the Aran Islands. They befriended us for a few hours, and stories were shared. 
They bought so many rounds that there were four pints in front of me at one point. That is the richness of a warm-hearted people. Go see the ferryman. It will touch your heart, stimulate your brain, and maybe even provide a mirror for societal reflection. That is how great a play Jez Butterworth has written. Now I'd like to talk about last season's hit, Schoolgirls or the African Mean Girls Play. After a very successful premiere last year, MCC Theatre has reprised Jocelyn Bio's play, Schoolgirls or the African Mean Girls Play. The title informs the premise. At the Aburi Girls Boarding School in Ghana, Paulina is the alpha. She has friends who tolerate her abuse to be part of her circle. Not exactly the most unique scenario, but the location choice makes the formula seem fresher. Paulina tells Nana she looks like a cow and needs to stop eating. Paulina knows best. She is certain that she will be selected to compete in this year's Miss Ghana 1986 pageant as she is clearly the most beautiful girl and delights in telling everyone with an earshot. Who will be selected to represent this school in the beauty pageant is the train that guides the plot. The stops along the way to get to know these young ladies are the real fun. A new girl is introduced into the mix, having just moved from the United States to her father's home country. Will she be adopted into the clique, or become a ferocious alpha herself? The laughs are plenty in this gleeful situation comedy before things get mean. Or should I say meaner? Paulina wants to win badly. All the other girls are competing, but only new arrival Erica seems to have a realistic chance. When a pageant recruiter arrives, herself a Miss Ghana 1966, the fangs emerge. When our alpha girls finally sit down and retract their claws, there is an overlong scene which turns this play into a hokey after-school special with dramatic revelations and personality swings which are simply not believable. Thankfully, the scene ends and we get back on track. Schoolgirls is also about the things school-age girls think about. Boys, makeup, college, dresses, friendship, marriage, peer pressure. At the end of this exceptionally well-acted play, there is a deeper message. Meanness also comes from the competitive nature of who is better than whom and why, and in whose opinion. What does beauty mean? What actions does society wittingly or unwittingly proffer upon young females as they develop themselves for life? Laughs are plentiful in schoolgirls or the African mean girls play, as are slights much bigger than name-calling. Those indignities that are more systemic and long-lasting is where the true meanness lurks. We laugh because we recognize it. We cringe because we recognize it. We face it because we need to move forward generation by generation. The next play I'd like to discuss is the Waverly Gallery. Elaine May is the star of the Waverly Gallery, Kenneth Lonergan's memory play based upon his grandmother's dementia. Gladys Green lives in Greenwich Village and operates an art gallery in a neighborhood where everything is past its prime. Her grandson lives in the apartment next door, Dan Reed, played by Lucas Hedges, is the narrator, occasionally breaking out of the play to speak with the audience about his grandmother's decline and its impact on him and his family. Written in 2000, 
This play was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Dementia is certainly a major illness impacting the lives of so many people, including families that I know. At the time of its writing, this play may have been revelatory in its exploration of this woman and the fearsome descent into a frightening place of confusion and despair. In this version, I found the proceedings extremely slow. Director Lila Nugenbauer paces this piece deliberately with long scene changes. The images projected seemed to showcase scenes from a world when life was being lived to the fullest. The speeches from the grandson are thoughtful but oddly clinical. The words in this play are often clever, but nothing really happens. There is a side story about an artist, played by Michael Sarah, who shows his work in her gallery. That story was diverting but overlong. The core of the problem for me was the fact that I only felt emotion for Gladys. I left the theater wondering if Miss May's performance was so strong that it lifted the play into something more meaningful. I found the rest of this talented ensemble too actorly and stiff. Frankly, I'm surprised that the Waverly Gallery did not speak to me, having witnessed, and still witnessing, levels of dementia being dealt with in families I know. I've absorbed gut-wrenching stories, like the novel Still Alice by Lisa Genova, and its depiction of a woman's sudden descent into early-onset Alzheimer's disease. Why could I not connect with the material here? Is it the play? Perhaps not deep enough anymore with this terrain having been explored more thoroughly over the last 20 years? Was it the direction which plodded along hurting a thinly plotted story? Was it the actors who didn't seem to connect me to their inner feelings other than superficially? What I do know is that Elaine May's performance was an incredible combination of understated yet big and undeniably magnetic. Now we'll go downtown to the public theater and the musical Girl from the North Country. Earlier this month, I saw and reviewed Renaissance, the musical celebration of the poetry of Edna St. Vincent Millay. I went back to see it again, despite a heavy theater schedule, just to confirm my rave. Some critics were quite negative in their assessment, which I found incomprehensible. That is why multiple points of view and the existence of bloggers is essential to discourse in the theater. I had heard great things about Girl from the North Country when it ran in London last year, so I decided to attend, only knowing that this was a show based on the music of Bob Dylan, the first songwriter to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature. On the way home from the theater, I decided to read some of the critics' reviews. They were raves, which I found incomprehensible. Successful playwright Connor McPherson, he wrote The Ware, The Seafarer, he wrote and directed Girl from North Country. The setting is Duluth, Minnesota in 1934 during the Great Depression. Mr. Dillon's songs are used to comment on the bleak despair blanketing America at that time. Racism, poverty, mental illness, criminals, false prophets, and hooch all swirl around in an inn run by the Lanes, played by Scott Bogardus and Mayor Winningham. There is a morphine-addicted doctor who vaguely acts as narrator to occasionally outline the plot as the story clearly needs explanation. Elizabeth Lane starts off the show severely mentally challenged, 
unable to feed herself. By the end, her backbone is quite developed. She dances at parties, and she's got lots of opinions to bark. Years do not pass by here, just days. The story arc is preposterous, and Miss Winningham gives one of the best performances in the show. The problems here are numerous. The music and lyrics are quite beautiful, but have little to do with the comings and goings other than to be moody and introspective. Repetitively, the cast surrounds a microphone like this exercise is a radio show, radio show type concert. There is often no way at all to discern why certain characters are singing these particular songs and why they return to the stage. This musical is all atmosphere and mood, which is fine. If you make a big deal about creating a period piece using costumes, projections, and storyline, then perhaps the actors should have some sense of place in their performance and dialogue. Was the word fuck that common in Duluth in 1934? Is there anything to recommend Girl from the North Country? The sound design was superb and the songs were delivered beautifully. The New York Times Review made a big point that this show was not your standard-issue jukebox musical. If frequently standing at a microphone facing the audience while more than once snapping your fingers and swaying your hips during group harmonies is not jukebox, then I'm confused. The songs were indeed nicely performed and richly evocative of Mr. Dillon's commentary on America. They were shoehorned into a show that largely did not connect to them other than to set a mood. I was bored throughout this entire show. As the musical was coming to a close, once again the doctor had to come to the microphone to tell us what was happening. We learned the fates of all the main characters years later. By that point, I was simply glad the evening had come to a close. When I left for Renaissance, I felt overwhelmed by the words of Miss Millay's poetry, which is ingeniously connected to the character stories in her orbit. Comparing that show to this much higher budget of affair at the public theater is unfair. One was a glorious celebration of the words of a woman who was the voice of her generation. The other was a jumble of well-intentioned, yet affected, skit-like musings, celebrating the words of a man who was the voice of his generation. What's the best word to describe Girl from the North Country? I choose terrible. Just in time for the season, at Playwrights Horizons, I caught the off-Broadway play, The Thanksgiving Play. This Thanksgiving I was home, cooking, and going to see the Macy's Parade live for the first time on what turned out to be the coldest turkey day in over a century. My toes were not happy. The parade was great fun in person, and the meal was traditional, comforting, and delicious. The night before the big day, I decided to check out the Thanksgiving play at Playwrights Horizons. Quote, Good intentions collide with absurd assumptions in Larissa Fasthorse's wickedly funny satire. Unquote. Well, that was the description that drove me to start celebrating the holiday with a little snarky fun. In the program notes, we learn that Ms. Fasthorse is a Native American who loves Thanksgiving, the food, and time with family. Here's a great quote from her. I love a whole day set aside to focus on gratitude. She is also acutely aware that this holiday was created by President Lincoln, who was looking to unify a very divided country during the Civil War. 
Maybe Ivanka Day is coming? After the Pilgrims survived their first New England winter, the inaugural feast occurred in 1621. Centuries of genocide followed. That is not what is taught to our children in school, however. Miss Fasthorse has cleverly framed the Thanksgiving play as a comedy with her characters in an elementary school. They are rehearsing for the upcoming holiday show for the children. Since the three locals are all white, they hire an actress to bring a real Native American to the proceedings. The actress does not really fit the description, but she was an understudy for Jasmine in Aladdin, so that will have to suffice. The play essentially covers the rehearsal period as they work through a series of scenes or improvisations to form a believably realistic message of what our Thanksgiving means from the Native American point of view. Well-meaning white liberals who are vegan-friendly, yoga-practicing, and self-lacerating attempt to do the right thing. How should white people who are sensitive to the true history of this vilified race of people put on a play with white people playing all the parts and telling the story, as did the history books? There are laughs in this play, and the main target of Miss Fasthorse's wit is clearly racism. Her play covers a lot of ground and meanders around a lot of topics. As a result, the play rarely hits the acerbic satire level that could be achieved. There is one scene which is outstandingly inappropriate, contains horrifically offensive props, and is very, very funny. Four or five more of those scenes would elevate the Thanksgiving play to a higher level of inspired lunacy or repulsive absurdity. Instead, the production is a nicely performed, mildly amusing diversion. It's like turkey with no gravy. Enjoyable, but a little bland. Build online as the Cleopatra experience, I now want to talk a little bit about the musical Cleopatra. Here's the idea. Let's follow the stratospheric success of Broadway's Hamilton and tell a story using contemporary music, including rap, about a famous historical figure smack dab in the middle of politics, war, and tumultuous personal relationships. Let's model Cleopatra, the original queen of the Nile, after a contemporary one, Beyonce. Let's capitalize on the omnipresent juggernaut that is RuPaul's Drag Race and add another queen as mistress of ceremonies to bring some downtown cred and more fans. Create a basement club space containing a runway, throne, and a bar. Add a DJ to the mix to warm up the pre-show crowd with big catchy hits. Grab a cocktail, sit or stand, depending on your budget, and let big fun wash all over you. Inside Cleopatra's palace, invited guests and her entourage are lavishly indulged, celebrating the queen's recent successes against Rome. Outside the city walls, however, lurk the alluring Mark Antony and nefarious Octavian. Royal intrigue must certainly follow. Dusty Ray Bottoms, a recent contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race, confidently leads this journey with big heels and bigger hair, though this is not a drag show at all. Cleopatra is an original musical written by Jeff Day and Laura Kleinbaum. There are a wide range of influences in the score which effectively fuse multiple styles. Club beats meet contemporary Broadway pop rock and big radio hits to create familiar-sounding and entertaining songs. 
Adding to the tuneful score is energetic, bouncy choreography with a whiff of Egyptian realness thrown in once in a while. By realness, I mean of the walk-like-an-Egyptian variety. The entire creative team has put together a solidly designed environment, which admittedly seemed a little underwhelming when I arrived. After viewing the production, however, the action is truly all on stage from this committed ensemble. Cleopatra is a party, so grab a drink and let the entertainment begin. With a lovely voice, able to cover many genres, Naya plays the queen. She's a contemporary of Beyoncé both in concept and in execution. Her eyes convey her innermost thoughts. As Mark Antony, Christian Brailsford was a fine match filled with smoldering intensity. The history books note that Cleopatra bore three of his children. Here they are simply drawn to each other like moths to a flame. Danger is lurking and power needs to be consolidated. This version is a much steamier coupling than the Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton film from 1963. Like any good party, audience participation is encouraged, but happily not demanded. These sections of the show are smile-inducing, appropriately quick and silly, leading to eruptions of support from the revelers. If you can, sit in the first row. Some of the action will literally take place within a foot of your face. Also, there will be no sightline issues. All of the ebullient dancing and kinetic staging by director and choreographer J.T. Hornstein will be more easily seen up front as the platform is only a foot or so off the ground. As a musical, and as an experience, Cleopatra kicks asp. I still have three shows left to cover this month. Recording these podcasts is a lot of fun as you get to revisit the pieces and rethink about the ones you've seen. This was a particularly busy month, and this will probably wind up being the longest podcast I've ever recorded. So only three more to go if you're still with me. We'll now head to WP Theater and the off-Broadway play Natural Shocks. Apparently, Lauren Gunderson, the author of Natural Shocks, was the most produced playwright in the United States last year. While that designation excludes perennial favorite William Shakespeare, it is nonetheless a major accomplishment. WP Theater, a company focused on presenting works by female artists, seemed a logical choice for this world premiere production. This tedious play does nothing to help me fathom Miss Gunderson's success. Pascal Armand, who was a Tony nominee for the play Eclipse, she portrays Amanda, a woman trapped in her basement as a storm is approaching. The whole play is a monologue to the audience about the impending tornado and her feelings on many, many hot-button issues. Who are we, the audience, and why are we listening? That oddity is cleared up in the last ten minutes or so, but by then this play has jumped down so many rabbit holes that regrouping is not a reasonable expectation. Miss Gunderson bludgeons this play with themes which are either subtle throwaways or bolded banner headlines. At one point, Amanda reaches into a storage box labeled Books. She pulls out Sense and Sensibility, which she says she is currently rereading. Why is it in the box in the basement? That book is never referred to again, but the feminist foreshadowing continues to pile on. The large theme here is that men are very, very bad people. Her father left her mom. Her husband is not the man she thought he was. 
She's very analytical. She's an actuary, so her analysis is calculated and measured. Amanda is trying to be happy and forcefully and sarcastically sings, Come on, get happy, repeatedly, ominously warning that she needs to be ready for the judgment day. With excitement, Amanda realizes there is alcohol in the basement. She opens the bottle, swigs, and soon thereafter puts it down, never to be touched or mentioned again. Rabbit holes show up everywhere, as if every calamity and self-preservation tactic facing a woman in danger must be checked off. Miss Armand tries to make this amateur storytelling vaguely interesting, but she cannot hold our attention, nor quite remember all her lines, though it is a long, big, often awkward monologue. The ending of this play is perhaps the reason this vehicle was selected as part of WP's season. Even that section, however, strained all credibility despite being well-intentioned. If the danger had passed over the house, as we are told, why stay in the basement? The dialogue often made me cringe. Here is a playwright who knew she wanted a powerful, topically relevant ending, but was incapable of building a story or a character in which we believably could follow or care. Natural Shocks is a complete misfire. Friends, we're getting there. Only two more to go, both Broadway productions. First, the play, The Lifespan of a Fact. Broadway used to be a place where comedies such as The Lifespan of a Fact thrived. These were topical entertainments, thought-provoking but not too heavy, with a talented cast you really wanted to see. On a dismal, rainy Monday night in Manhattan, I was rewarded for my effort. In our world of fake news, conspiracy theories, and outright lies, a play about a fact-checker at a magazine could not be more timely. Jeremy Carrican, David Merle, and Gordon Farrell wrote this play based on a nonfiction book of the same name. John Degada and Jim Fingal published their personal story concerning an essay about a 17-year-old who killed himself in Las Vegas. John is played here by Bobby Cannavale, he of The Big Knife, The Hairy Ape, The Motherfucker with the Hat. His persona is literary genius, big picture guy. Cherry Jones, who I've seen in The Glass Menagerie, Doubt, who triumphed in The Heiress, well, Miss Jones portrays Emily, the magazine editor torn between brilliant writing and probable literary license. On the one hand, in the age of declining circulation, print magazines need stories as brilliant. On the other hand, she has to weigh the risks of lawsuits and reputation hits caused by later corrections. Emily hires Jim to fact-check the article. John points out to Jim that the piece is an essay, not an article. Dumb intern. A Harvard graduate, Jim throws himself into his work and has copious notes for the story. Every detail is analyzed. John wants to write that the building's bricks are red, even though they are brown. He states that there are 34 strip clubs in Vegas based on a source that says there are only 31. Red and 31 are much better, more poetic facts than the real ones. And so it goes, writer and fact checker sparring the details with a nervous editor on deadline teetering between extremes. This is a comedy which does not take sides. The two sparring characters are very funny in their quest to prevail. We see ourselves through Emily and her decisions. We live in a world where people believe crazy stuff. I know somebody who believes that Michelle Obama is a man and can prove it. 
facts are an increasingly valuable commodity in a society dumbed down with underfunded education and overzealous idolatry. How important are the details? If incorrect, does that put a question mark on the story being told? Should there be literary license to let an author tell the tale in their stylistic way? What is true? Is the brick red all day? Or can it seem brown during the sunset? Daniel Radcliffe's performance as the fact checker was spot on. He's a hero, a nerd, and an idealist who can also be seen as an indignant snob whose youthful exuberance colors the world in black and white. I've seen this actor four times previously in New York, in The Cripple of Inishman, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Equus, and Privacy. Mr. Radcliffe is always good. In the lifespan of a fact, he excels with sharp comedic timing and a precisely drawn character who is nicely outlined in gray. Further, he confidently holds the stage with Miss Jones and Mr. Cannavale, two powerhouse actors. At the end of this enjoyable evening of theater, I am reminded of the band Talking Heads. The song, Cross-Eyed and Painless, contains the lyric, Facts don't do what I want them to. Whether you're a writer, a business person, or a politician, there will always be facts that are inherently difficult to swallow. The smartest and most talented people usually figure out a way to embrace them and move on. Then again, there will always be multitudes of ostriches burying their heads in the sand. And now I'd like to talk about My Fair Lady, last season's revival that I just got around to seeing in November. Laura Benanti took over the lead in My Fair Lady this fall. She is one of my favorite Broadway actresses and entertainers. I've also seen her at 54 Below. She's on Stephen Colbert's show. And you could check out her version of Fosca on YouTube, which is genius. Unfortunately, she was not performing the night I attended. For the people seated next to us, that was intolerable and they left. While it can be a disappointment when a star is out, those who see the glass half full can take the opportunity to let an understudy lead the way. Heather Botts nicely played Eliza Doolittle, especially as an actress. Her microphone, though, was dialed a bit too low. I strained to hear some of her singing while other people boomed loudly. This production of My Fair Lady was directed by Bartlett Scherr. Unlike his triumphant revivals of South Pacific and The King and I, this show came across to me as underpopulated and unfinished. The thrust stage of the Vivian Beaumont Theater may be the reason. When the cast is on stage for the larger ensemble scenes, there is so much open space. The classic Act One closer at the Ascot races was an odd visual of beautiful costumes in front of a lighted backdrop. It felt as if the budget had run out. Much of the investment in the set design here seemed to be used to create Henry Higgins's immensely handsome study. When a scene was to take place, the room lumbered from the back of the stage to the front. I use the word lumbered deliberately, as the noise of the effort was audible. Then the scene begins, and there is still more movement to be completed, as the backdrops have to fall into place while the actors are performing. That's a lot of distraction in a show which, for my seat, never took off. Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe's score contains quite a number of Broadway gems, including I Could Have Danced All Night and On the Street Where You Live. The story is well known, involving a gentleman who takes a bet to transform a flower girl into a classy lady. 
Given the hashtag MeToo moment, the timing of this revival is a bit unfortunate, but Eliza's got a feminist streak in her which is used effectively here. With this pedigree, I find it hard to pinpoint why the evening came across so flat and uninspired. My guess is that the Svengali tone of the piece has been softened slightly. As Professor Henry Higgins, I found Harry Hayden Payton's characterization leaning to the side of nice or even goofy, awkward, frat boy dumb. He calls her names without any real edge to those insults. The words are indeed biting, but the meanness did not register far enough. Since this interpretation has cast a much younger Higgins than is typical, the effect is perhaps less menacing and creepy. I find it fascinating that this year Broadway has staged My Fair Lady, Carousel, and Pretty Woman, given the current national discourse on the treatment of women by men. Eliza is a particularly interesting case. Luckily, plucked from obscurity, she is strongly driven to pursue a golden opportunity to raise her stature in life. That feminism is well represented in this version. The show as a whole, however, is fairly inert with a couple of high points. The Ascot race scene and memorable performances by Alan Cordiner as Colonel Pickering, Norbert Leo Butts as Alfred P. Doolittle, and Lyndall Muggleston as the maid Mrs. Pierce. I was really looking forward to seeing this musical. My Fair Lady is a favorite for many, and there were older audience members obviously enjoying its famous score being played by a full orchestra. I'm surprised how disappointed I was leaving the theater. Thank you for surviving a lengthy episode of Theater Reviews for My Seats podcast. Next month, I'm going to be covering a few holiday offerings. Looking Glass Theater's The Steadfast Tin Soldier in Chicago, With some guests in town, I'm going to revisit Radio City's Christmas Spectacular this year and also Taylor Mac's Holiday Sauce. For regular listeners, you may remember I covered Taylor Mac's 24-hour two-part History of American Music last June. This new show promises to be a celebration of the holiday season in all of its dysfunction. It's Christmas as Calamity. The show promises to reframe the songs we love and the holidays we hate. Now that should be fun. And I'll also make sure to throw in some more serious theater going, including Stockard Channing and Apologia, and St. Anne's Warehouse presentation of The Jungle, a transfer from London. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsformyseat.com. Thank you for listening.